This is the Humanist Report with Mike Figueredo. The Humanist Report podcast is funded by viewers like you through Patreon and PayPal. To support the show, visit patreon.com forward slash humanist report or become a member at humanistreport.com. Now, enjoy the show. Welcome to the Humanist Report Podcast. My name is Mike Figueredo, and this is the 148th edition of the program. Today is June 21st, the very first day in summer, hence the Super Summer Shirt. And this episode of the program is brought to you by our newest Patreon and PayPal contributors that signed up just this last week. And that includes Amala, Frank Treboshi, Ginny Schwingle, Jack Robolito, Jonathan Keen, Julia Galadet, Lisa, Marco Gonzalez, Michael Arntz, Terry Hassan, and Truthseeker. So thank you so much to all of these kind individuals. If you'd also like to support the Humanist Report podcast, you can do so in numerous ways. You can visit humanistreport.com support, and that's how you can sign up to become a Patreon, or excuse me, a PayPal member, but you can also sign up to be a Patreon patron on humanistreport.com or visit patreon.com forward slash humanist report but otherwise just the mere fact that you are tuning in and watching is all that i could ever ask or hope for so on today's episode first we'll talk about trump's fascistic zero tolerance immigration policy that really takes the worst of bush and obama's cruelest immigration policies and puts them on steroids we'll also talk about fox news's attempt to defend trump here and i'll also discuss why it's time to abolish ice also seattle city council repealed a tax that they recently passed on big businesses that would have helped fight the city's homeless crisis and one resident decided to grill them for it and it was awesome democrats are resisting trump from the right when it comes to the issue of north korea Kathy Griffin becomes yet another D-list celebrity and rich person that decided to vote shame Jill Stein voters. And in this week's net neutrality news, one Californian Democrat might single-handedly ruin the state's chances at securing net neutrality. We'll talk about that. And additionally, in the least surprising news ever, Ajit Pai lies again. And there's another scandal involving him and his agency. We'll talk about the debate between Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Joe Crowley. And finally, we'll speak with Representative Ro Khanna about his dual endorsement of Joe Crowley and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. So that's on the agenda for today. I hope you guys enjoy the episode. People all over the country are justifiably outraged because nearly 2,000 children have now been separated from their parents and they're being held in these makeshift detention centers placed in literal cages and at some of these facilities, the conditions are prison-like. Now, for the most part, journalists and even lawmakers have not been allowed inside these detention centers, but some journalists are now being let in. However, they're not allowed to take pictures and they can only take notes and they're only allowed to spend 15 minutes in these facilities. And this is according to David Begnod, a reporter for CBS News. Now, the United States Customs and Border Protection Agency actually did release a video and confirmed that they are locked in literal cages. And that's what you're seeing now. So the question is, why are we seeing human beings locked in cages? Why are we seeing children locked in cages like animals? Well, this is due to a new policy announced by Donald Trump's Department of Justice, where 
they are carrying out a zero-tolerance approach to immigration. Now, everyone who crosses the border will be criminally detained and prosecuted. And if you are crossing the border with, with children and you're criminally detained, what happens to the kids? Well, they get taken into U.S. custody, hence why we're seeing thousands of children now in cages. So, it's really important to understand how we got here because what we're seeing is a very fascistic policy towards immigration. But Donald Trump wouldn't have been able to do this had it not been for the cruel and inhumane policies of his predecessors who really set the stage and moved us closer and closer towards the fascistic immigration policies that we're seeing today. So it started with George W. Bush in 2005, who instituted the first iteration of what's now known as the zero-tolerance approach to immigration. And as the New York Times explains, in 2005, he launched Operation Streamline, a program along a stretch of the border in Texas that referred all unlawful entrants for criminal prosecution, imprisoning them and expediting assembly lines style trials geared toward quickly deporting them. The initiative yielded results and was soon expanded to more border sectors. Back then, however, exceptions were generally made for adults who were traveling with minor children as well as juveniles and people who were ill. Now, comparatively speaking, what George W. Bush did back then, well, that's obviously a lot less cruel than what Donald Trump is doing now, but back then, a lot of us saw that as something that was incredibly cruel because he was taking this hardline stance because according to him, Bush thought, well, you know, if I'm really cruel, hopefully other immigrants who are thinking of coming over will see that we're being cruel and that will hopefully act as a deterrent that will discourage others from crossing the border. Now, when Obama took office, he actually used Bush's program as a launching point of his own when he didn't know how to respond to an influx of immigrants from Central America uh, in 2014. So he also decided that he wanted to invoke a really cruel and harsh policy policy in order to discourage more people from crossing. And he decided to detain everyone that crossed the border illegally. And as the New York Times explains, the steps led to just the kind of brutal images that Mr. Obama's advisors feared. Hundreds of young children, many dirty and some in tears, who were being held with their families in makeshift detention facilities. Immigration advocacy groups denounced the policy, berating senior administration officials, some of whom were reduced to rueful apologies for a policy they said they could not justify, and telling Mr. Obama to his face during a meeting at the White House in late 2014 that he was turning his back on the most vulnerable people seeking refuge in the United States. Before long, the Obama administration would face legal challenges and be forced to stop detaining families indefinitely. A federal judge in Washington ordered the administration in 2015 to stop detaining asylum-seeking Central American mothers and children in order to deter others from their region from coming into the United States. So understand how this is similar to what Trump is doing now, but not the same thing. Obama decided to adopt this hardline stance to discourage others from crossing the border, and he said anyone who comes over we're going to detain you. We're going to detain your whole family. So if you're, 
you know, two parents with three children, all of you will be detained. That's what he decided to do. That was his policy. And that's why we saw these images surface recently of children sleeping in cages. That was a result of Obama's policy. Now, to be clear, these people were not criminally detained. They were just administratively detained. But nonetheless, that still led to them being placed in cages because there was an influx of immigrants. And Obama didn't really know how to handle this situation. It was a new issue. It was new territory. So he thought adopting this really hardline xenophobic stance, quite frankly, would make him look better if more people weren't coming because if more people come and he doesn't know how to deal with them, then that would ultimately lead to more people in cages if he continued with this zero tolerance policy. Now, Obama made it clear that it was never his goal to separate families at the border. But it is the case that in some instances, his policies did result in some families being separated at the border. And this is thanks in part due to what's known as the Alien Transfer Exit Program. And it was actually one of the last policies carried out by the Bush administration before Obama took office. And what this policy did was take Mexican men that would illegally enter the country and drop them off hundreds, if not thousands of miles away from where they originally came from. And this was another method the Bush administration used to deter others from entering the country illegally, but ended up putting these people in danger by leaving them in an unfamiliar area in the country that they originally came from. And moreover, their families would have no idea where these men were sent. So if a Mexican man would come over with his family, the children would be able to stay with their mother. But if a Mexican man would come over and he had kids by himself, then that family would be separated. But this was a very harsh policy that both Obama and Bush thought was necessary, again, in order to discourage more people from Central America uh, from coming over. Now, as Tina Vasquez of Rewire reports, in 2011, the Alien Transfer Exit Program affected an estimated one-fifth of migrants detained by Border Patrol along the southwest border. That's because ATEP ramped up under the Obama administration as a way to handle the spike in Mexican immigrants attempting to enter the United States. While ATEP targets Mexican men attempting to enter the United States, the program doesn't just nab men traveling alone. Men migrating with their families are separated from them, detained, and transported to an unfamiliar place in Mexico, while their partners and children are left to languish in detention centers. In 2011, during the height of ATEP, almost none of the reporting about the program focused on family separation. So it's really important to understand the background because it lets you know where we are now and how we got to this situation where border patrol agents are literally separating families at the border. So it started with George W. Bush, where he adopted this hardline anti-immigration stance in order to deter others from coming. Obama got into power, and he decided to ramp up the policies that George Bush put in place. And now, just like Obama did, Trump has gone into power, and he decided to ramp up the policies that his predecessor, Obama, put in place. So it really started, and it continued to build and build. And now we're to this point where our immigration 
policies are so hardline that they're fascistic. We're now literally breaking up families at the border. So now that you know that, it's easier to understand what's happening now. So once Trump took office, he immediately, I mean, one of the first things he considered doing was bringing back George Bush's Operation Streamline Zero Tolerance policy. And one of the main proponents in Trump's administration for this policy was Stephen Miller, who serves as a senior advisor to Trump and is also a psychopath. Now, soon after, Attorney General Jeff Sessions announced the administration's new zero-tolerance policy. Well, weeks later, we now know, according to DHS, that 2,000 children have been separated from their parents at the border. And Trump's Justice Department doesn't explicitly say that children must be separated from their parents at the border, but this is a direct consequence of this policy. And because there's no law on the books that clearly requires children to be separated from their parents, well, this allowed the Department of Homeland Security Secretary Kirsten Nielsen to straight up obfuscate the truth and gaslight people and saying on Twitter, quote, we do not have a policy of separating families at the border, period. Now, again, that's technically true, but it's a total obfuscation because their decision to build on George Bush's Operation Streamline policy directly led to families being separated at the border. So effectively, their policy is to separate families at the border because that's the result of this zero tolerance policy. All individuals that cross the border illegally are taken into custody, and if they have children, what happens to those children? Those children are taken into state custody. Now, another huge problem with this policy, besides it just being brazenly, unnecessarily cruel and inhumane, is that the United States doesn't have a policy or a way of reuniting most of these families. So, in some instances, the parents are deported back to their country of origin and the kids remain in U.S. custody. We have no idea how to deal with that. We don't have a policy solution to this. And when these kids are taken into U.S. custody, some of them may never reunite with their parents at this point in time. Some of them may be placed up for adoption. So really, it's not just that we're temporarily separating families. It may be the case since we don't really know how to handle this type of a crisis, that we are permanently separating these families. And as the nation's Zoe Carpenter explains, Merkley and several others met with 10 women, most from Honduras, who had been separated from their children, one as young as three. Only some of them know where their children were taken, to shelters elsewhere in Texas, but also as far as Miami and New York. One woman worried about her child's health because no one collected information about her child's medical condition when they were separated. Another had been told that her child would be put up for adoption. It was the most disturbing thing I heard all day, said Rhode Island representative David Ciceline. They were sobbing, sobbing uncontrollably. None of the women has been able to talk to a lawyer. Now, one woman was actually prosecuted for entering the country illegally when she turned herself in at one of Port Isabel's legal ports of entry, where people can actually go if they are trying to seek asylum, which you can do. But she was still prosecuted. In fact, before people can even ask for asylum, they're now being turned away. So even though we've seen similar immigration policies in the past from Bush and yes, liberals, Obama too, this is the cruelest of the cruel. We've reached a point where you just can't defend this. It's indefensible. 
This is so cruel that we're not even allowing people who are fleeing violence in Central America to make their case for asylum. We're turning them away, if not detaining them, when they show up at these legal ports of entry, if they are choosing to follow the law and enter the country illegally. I mean, they always say, follow the law, follow the law. Well, they're trying to follow the law. They're trying to seek asylum and enter legally, and you won't even let them do that. So they're just being cruel. There's no need for this. They are being unusually cruel because as we've seen with previous administrations, Bush and Obama, the whole goal is to be as cruel as possible so you discourage others from coming over. Now, kudos to Jeff Merkley, which is my senator from Oregon, for actually elevating this issue by actually visiting one of these detention centers. Democrats are now smartly, I think, following suit and visiting some of these centers. But of course, now that there's a lot of backlash, what is Donald Trump doing to justify his cruel policy? Well, as usual, he's deflecting and he's literally blaming Democrats for it. He tweeted out, Democrats can fix their forced family breakup at the border by working with Republicans on new legislation for a change. This is why we need more Republicans elected in November. Democrats are good at only three things, high taxes, high crime, and obstruction. Sad. And he also states, change the laws. Now, this is just absurd. Your party controls every single branch of government. The onus to act is on you. Your DOJ just announced this policy. So you've got to own it. You've got to own that this is your fault. You can end this policy immediately, but you're choosing to not do that. You're choosing to try to deflect. When we know exactly why you implemented this policy in the first place, he initially actually considered this policy as one of the articles alluded to earlier, but he backed off of it because he knew that there would be swift and severe backlash from the public, and now he decided to carry it out anyway after one of his goons convinced him to do that, and now he's trying to blame Democrats for it? That's horseshit. Democrats are spineless, and they're not resisting you enough for just how cruel this policy is, and certainly they didn't uh, resist Obama and Bush enough, but this is on you, and you've got to own it, but Trump isn't going to own it. However, some people in his administration, they're not just owning it. They're actually proud of this type of policy. In fact, Jeff Sessions, his attorney general, literally invoked the Bible in order to justify this policy. I thought I'd take a little bit of digression here to uh, discuss some concerns raised by our church friends about separation of families. Many of the criticisms raised in recent days are not fair, not logical, and some are contrary to plain law. First, illegal entry into the United States is a crime. It should be, it must be, if you're going to have a legal system and have any limits whatsoever. Persons who violate the law of our nation are subject to prosecution. If you violate the law, you subject yourself to prosecution. And I would cite you to the Apostle Paul and his clear and wise command in Romans uh, 13 to obey the laws of the government because God has ordained, ordained the government for his purposes. Now, in case you didn't know, this is the same Bible passage that was used to justify slavery. It was also used to justify apartheid in South Africa. And yes, even Nazis use this passage.
But since it's the Bible here that we're choosing to cite, there's always an equal and opposite verse to justify the opposing argument, like Leviticus 19, 34 which says, When a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall not do him wrong. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you. You shall love him as yourself, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am your Lord. I am the Lord your God. So, I mean, you'd think that people like Jeff Sessions would be aware of the Bible's more compassionate verses that reference immigration. But of course, these aren't reasonable people that we're dealing with. We're seeing the worst of previous administrations inhumane and cruel immigration policies put on steroids by Trump here. And if liberals called out Obama for expanding Bush's xenophobic policies, maybe it's the case that Trump would have been less reluctant to expand the policies of his predecessors. In fact, again, Trump was apprehensive about carrying out this policy initially because he knew people would be very angry with him. However, people in his ear ultimately convinced him to do that. And now he's not backing down. So Donald Trump's zero-tolerance immigration policy is morally reprehensible. It's absolutely disgusting. There's really no way you can justify it. It's indefensible. It's fascistic. And I'm glad that people are finally speaking out against the United States' disgusting, xenophobic immigration policies. I just wish that liberals specifically would have been more vocal during the Obama years because Trump is using the precedent set by his predecessors to justify what he's doing now. If you allow our elected officials to keep getting more and more fascistic and xenophobic and you don't keep them in check, then eventually you reach this boiling point where they just become brazenly fascistic and they start separating families at the border. It's disgusting. So we've got to be consistent and call it like we see it. Wrong is wrong. Bush was wrong. Obama came in and expanded on those disgusting policies, and now Trump came in and expanded on Obama's disgusting policies. And the logical conclusion is that the next administration will expand on Trump's policies to where what we're seeing is indistinguishable from Nazi Germany. And it's absolutely disgusting. I know that some Republicans think that comparing this to Nazi Germany is hyperbole, but Think about it. We have a literal government agency known as ICE doing raids, seeking out undocumented immigrants. If that doesn't harken back to Nazi Germany in your view, you're just not being serious about yourself. So understand that we got here because of the United States' previous administrations putting everything in place that allowed for this type of horrendous policy. And now I'm glad people are paying attention. Don't let up. We've got to stop this. It's grotesque. President Trump is receiving a lot of criticism for his zero-tolerance immigration policy that facilitates the separation of families at the border. So, of course, we all know what that means. The propaganda wing of the Republican Party, Fox News, is reliably coming to the rescue like they always do. This is one of those moments that tells you everything about our ruling class. They care far more about foreigners than about their own people. You probably suspected that already. The other thing you may have noticed is that they're not especially interested in solutions to anything. They're great at yelling and at preening, not so good at fixing and building. 
We could strengthen our borders to keep illegals out. We could fund more immigration courts to process those who sneak through anyway. We could even build more housing facilities at the border, holding facilities to allow families to stay together while their asylum claims are processed. But the left is not interested in any of that. Their only solution is immediate amnesty for anyone who crosses our borders with a minor in tow. And of course, that's the same as no borders at all, not to mention a powerful incentive for child smuggling. They don't care. Because no matter what they tell you, this is not about helping children. A lot of people yelling at you on TV don't even have children. So don't for a second let them take the moral high ground. So I take it that the irony was lost on Tucker there. He states, this is one of those moments that tells you everything about our ruling class. They care far more about foreigners than our own people. Okay, <laughs> first of all, when you're talking about the ruling class, don't pretend as if that doesn't also include you, Mr. My net worth is $16 million. You are the ruling class, and you're especially powerful at this given moment in time, since the party that you belong to controls every single branch of government. And I just love the implication here that Republicans only want to implement these fascistic anti-immigrant policies because, you know, we can't spend money on these foreigners because we need to use that money to take care of our own people. So let me ask you this, Tucker, when did you and your Republican friends start suddenly caring about Americans? Because this is news to me. Up until this point, you guys haven't given a single fuck about Americans. Donald Trump, your president, just gutted the Affordable Care Act last year. Republicans proposed cuts to Medicare, Medicaid, and SNAP. And they've been trying to privatize Social Security since before I was born. They're passing laws specifically designed to disenfranchise black voters. They chastise people for speaking out against police brutality, against people of color. They're destroying unions across the country. They're letting companies dump waste and risk. I mean, in what reality do Republicans care at all, even a little bit about the American people? They care far more about foreigners than about their own people. You are stupid. Now, Tucker also states here, a lot of people yelling at you on TV don't even have children, so don't for a second let them take the moral high ground. <laughs> yes, because if you don't have children, well, newsflash, you simply can't care about other people's children. Maybe we can empathize, Tucker, because we've been children ourselves before, and we know how traumatic that would be to be ripped away from our parents. Or maybe we just care about other people's children. But according to Tucker Carlson, if you don't have children, well, you just simply, you can't say anything here. Brilliant logic there, fucker. I mean, Tucker. I guess you need to shut the fuck up now about abortion. I guess you need to shut the fuck up now about our social safety net since you're rich and welfare is something that doesn't apply to you. But Tucker isn't the only one defending Trump here because Laura Ingram, another stooge on Fox News, frankly, she decided to come out and defend him because, you know, imprisoning children, according to her, isn't that big of a deal because really, when you see these children in cages, it's pretty much like summer camp. She actually said this. Well, consistent with American law, when a party is arrested, your children are either sent to relatives or they become wards of the state. So since more illegal immigrants are rushing the border, more kids are being separated from their parents and temporarily housed in what are essentially summer camps, or as the San Diego Union Tribune described them today, as looking like basically boarding schools. It's just like summer camp when we lock children in cages and separate them from their parents. She actually said that 
with a straight face. She wasn't joking. She wasn't being facetious. She literally compared these detention facilities where they place children in cages to summer camp. Think about how dumb and dim-witted someone would have to be to make that comparison. And Laura, if you think that children being detained and separated from their parents is fun and like summer camp, well, we actually know that that is verifiably false because it doesn't sound like this child in the audio clip I'm about to play for you is having much fun as she's being taken away from her mom. Bueno, aquí tenemos una orquesta. That little girl wasn't having fun as she was being taken away and taken into U.S. custody. That was human suffering that you heard. And if you think that that's not a big deal, then you are morally bankrupt, Laura. And at these facilities, children are oftentimes treated like prisoners, not like campers. In fact, a former youth care worker recently resigned because he refused to carry out a literal no-hugging policy that one of these detention centers had in place. And then later on in the evening, it was not until 8 o'clock that the kids... Um, were assigned rooms um, in Spanish and English. They were trying to explain to the kids that they would all then be separated. The brother, the, two, the both, all three of the siblings in different rooms. Um, so they responded to this um, by basically clinging to each other and crying. So then I was called on the radio, and I was told over the radio, "Antar, come over here. You need to tell them that they cannot hug. They can't hug." Um, so I said, I, I don't know that I'm going to do that, but I'm, I'm on my way. So I, I arrived to the scene, and the, the, the three siblings were clutching each other for dear life, tears streaming down their face. Uh, I approached the, the oldest brother, and I, I say to him, Portuguese, bro, you, you got to be strong. And he, he turns to me with, with tears streaming down his face, and he says, how? how? How can I be strong? Look at my brother. Look at my sister. They're trying to separate us again. Um... And I, and I didn't know, I just and, put my head down. I didn't know what to respond to him. Antar, how moment, old are these uh, children? Ran, yes. How old are these children? These kids, the oldest, brother was six, the oldest brother was 16, the sister was 10, and the younger brother was 8. Um, so at that moment, the shift leader ran up to me and very aggressively told me, Diles que no pueden abrazar. Tell them that they can't hug. Now, this is also in front of other children, other employees who are watching this. And so she screams at me to tell them not to hug, that they're not allowed to hug. That's the rule of Southwest Key. And meanwhile, I'm looking at these kids. It's the two little, the two little siblings just, you know, thinking they're going to be ripped now from their brother's arms and the brother crying because he can't do anything necessarily. Um, and I told her at that point when she, she told me to do that, I told her, uh, I'm sorry, but as, as a human being, that's not something that I can do. Um, you're welcome to do it yourself. To which she, she replied, 
first that she would report me to the supervisor, and then she went directly to them and said, eh, no pueden abrazar, you're not allowed to hug. And he looks at me with tears streaming down his face in utter disbelief that that would happen. So, I mean, how can you listen to his story, which is completely believable, mind you. If we can place children in cages, we can treat them like animals, too. But, I mean, how could you hear his story and still think, oh, it's just like summer camp. You have to be delusional at this point to come to that conclusion. But this is... This is awful. I mean, this is psychological stress that will likely traumatize these children for the rest of their lives. And there's a reason why the president of the American Academy of Pediatrics referred to Trump's policy of separating families at borders as child abuse, because it is. But maybe it's the case that Laura Ingram hasn't seen videos of children crying as they're ripped away from their parents. However, even if one of Donald Trump's sycophantic reporters see that video and that footage they still find a way to rationalize it case in point as long as you keep that magnet on and what greater magnet than citizenship than medicare medicaid free health care yeah that's why people voted for well and i would also say one other thing these child actors weeping and crying on all the other networks 24 7 right now um do not fall for it mr president um <laughs> i get very nervous about the president getting well, his news from tv because Okay. Um, I, I also have an Adios America in New I don't Yorker. know if, I, well, I don't, a New Yorker I, I don't know article. if that's... New Yorker is not a conservative okay. publication. They describe so I told you we wouldn't get a word in. <laughs> I told you. These kids are being I'm coached. so sorry, we have to go. They're given scripts to read by liberals, according to the New Yorker. Don't well, fall for the actor children. Okay. Thank you for getting <laughs> that off your chest. You're welcome. So she just straight up went full Alex Jones there. Unbelievable. So I actually tried to look up the article that she was referencing there to see how she disingenuously misinterpreted it. And it turns out that she was actually referencing an article written in 2011 about how parents of immigrant children try to coach them into saying the right things that would help them qualify for asylum. And as the author of this article actually tweeted out in response to Ann Coulter butchering his article, quote, if you had three functioning brain cells, Ann Coulter, you wouldn't be mentioning my New Yorker article about asylum to support your racist positions. It's not about child actors. It's about narratives demanded of adults by a broken asylum system. So, I mean, these are not reasonable people. These are people who are deliberately trying to misinform you about this situation because they have an agenda. They have a fascistic, xenophobic agenda. These are Republican Party propagandists that dupe working people into believing that these immigrants are responsible for all of their economic woes. It's not the system itself. It's not predatory, unfettered capitalism or money in politics that corrupted an already exploitative system. It's these powerless, undocumented immigrants that are causing all of their problems. They're scapegoating the people with the least amount of power in our society and trying to claim that they caused all the problems. In reality, these are people who are escaping violence. Violence in large part, mind you, that was catalyzed by our policies, by our failed war on drugs, to blame them for, fl for fleeing the fucked up situation that we in part created is despicable. So we should allow them to seek asylum and certainly we need a pathway to citizenship for people who do want to get in the country. It's only right. You create a problem, 
you fix it by doing what's right. But these people, again, they they see that the system in America is broken and they don't know how to respond to that. So they do what's easy. They just blame immigrants. Well, that is not going to fix our problems. You can deport every single undocumented immigrant out of this country and the problems in this country will still persist. It's because it's not immigrants. It's the system itself. And if you cared about changing the system, then you would be arguing in favor of reform, not xenophobic anti-immigration policies. Ann Coulter, Tucker Carlson, and Laura Ingram. These people are absolute jokes. Kamala Harris has been a vocal opponent to Donald Trump's cruel and inhumane immigration policies, but what's interesting is that in an interview with Chris Hayes on MSNBC, when she was asked whether or not she'd support abolishing ICE, she said she did not. So she doesn't support abolishing a government agency that's carrying out some of the most cruelest policies against immigrants that she frequently speaks out against. Let's hear her out. Should ICE exist? Should ICE exist? Well, certainly when we're talking about people who have committed serious and violent crimes, you know, I mean, Chris, you know my background. I'm a prosecutor. I believe that there needs to be serious, severe and swift consequence when people commit serious and violent crimes. One human being kills another human being. A woman is raped. A child is molested. There needs to be serious consequence. And certainly if they are undocumented, they should be deported if they commit those serious and violent offenses. So, yes, ICE has a purpose. ICE has a role. ICE should exist. The correct answer is No, Kamala. It's just no. This is an agency that's inherently fascistic. They track down people and round up people. This isn't difficult. This is the American Gestapo. So to not advocate for the abolition of ICE, it's difficult to take you seriously when it comes to other things you say about immigration. Now look, I want to take her seriously because... I think she's doing a good job at speaking out against Donald Trump's cruel immigration policies. But when you say that you don't support the abolition of ICE, I can't understand your logic. This is a government agency created by Bush in 2003. It's not like it existed since our country was founded. It's a new agency. It's an unnecessary agency. We don't need an American Gestapo to round up immigrants and do these raids. We don't need that. ICE agents were literally going into churches and schools to round up undocumented immigrants until Obama actually directed them to stop doing this. Now, this directive, thankfully, has carried over into Donald Trump's administration. He hasn't gotten rid of it yet, but they're still subverting this by picking up people on their way to school and churches. And there's an in-depth article on Vox that talks about this. I mean, time and again, ICE agents have shown just how power-hungry and sociopathic they really are. And the examples of them rounding up people on their way to church or school pale into comparison with some of these disgusting anecdotes. So as Monique Judge of The Root reports, a Honduran woman at a detention center in McAllen, Texas, reportedly had her infant daughter who was breastfeeding and suckling on her nipple at the time ripped from her arms when she resisted having her nursing baby snatched from her breast she said she was handcuffed according to cnn the woman is being detained under the trump administration's zero tolerance policy that calls for anyone caught crossing the border illegally to be referred for federal prosecution but that's not all because a border patrol agent in montana literally detained two women why 
because they were speaking Spanish. He literally detained them for about a half an hour to 45 minutes and questioned them because they weren't speaking English. So can you tell us in the video, please, why you ask us for our IDs, please? Ma'am, the reason I asked you for your ID is because I came in here and I saw that you guys are speaking Spanish, which is very unheard of up here. Okay. Just run your name, date of birth. Just we have absence. The Jews because our purple, right? No. Racial purple. Purple. It has nothing to do with that. No. It's the fact that it has to do with you guys speaking Spanish in the store. Spanish in the store. In a state where it's predominantly English speaking. Okay. okay. Sounds good. I only stopped you because you were speaking Spanish, but I promise you it totally wasn't racially motivated. I mean, <laughs> unbelievable. So look, these examples that I'm giving you, they're only a microcosm of a broader issue here. If you have this agency dedicated to rounding up and tracking undocumented immigrants, then you're fostering a situation wherein abuse is possible. And that's what we're seeing. ICE agents are unnecessary. These are not people who care about their country. They're simply going after immigrants, people who are powerless. And they're rounding them up on their way to church and schools. How can you support that type of government agency? I mean, we have some Republicans like Ted Cruz calling for the abolition of the Internal Revenue Service, but yet Democrats like Kamala Harris, who claim to care about Trump's disgusting immigration policies, can't even speak out against ICE and call for the abolition of ICE? I mean, this really is, it's very simple. This is the American Gestapo. Advocate for abolishing them. So by now, we all know that whenever there is a particularly egregious policy carried out by Donald Trump's administration, rather than fighting him on it specifically, well, celebrities and Democratic Party loyalists always end up resorting back to their number one go-to tactic, vote shaming. Anyone who didn't vote for Hillary Clinton, this is your fault right here. Now, I don't know why they do this, because if you truly are outraged that something Donald Trump is doing, then wouldn't you want to fight him on that issue rather than relitigating the 2016 election? Vote shaming doesn't do anything. It achieves nothing. All it does is make you feel better and make it feel as though you're more noble than everyone else for voting for the lesser of two evils when really you look like a dumbass because you don't understand the policies that got us Trump in the first place. So getting to what Kathy Griffin, the newest vote shamer, said in response to a story about a dreamer being deported, Kathy Griffin tweeted out to every quote friend who didn't vote bragging about how at least they were smart enough to not vote for Hillary, voted for Jill Stein or Gary Johnson, Fuck you all. Now, to be fair, I do think that her rage is justified, albeit totally misdirected. The reason why a lot of progressives didn't want to support Hillary Clinton was because they didn't want to be complicit with the same type of policies with regard to immigration that we're seeing now. Certainly, Donald Trump's immigration policies are the cruelest we've seen. But with that being said, 
What Obama did wasn't great either, Kathy. Obama took a Bush-era program known as the Alien Transfer Exit Program, and he ramped it up. This program took Mexican men that entered the country illegally and literally dropped them off hundreds, if not thousands of miles away from where they originally came from. And what did this do? This put them in danger. This made them vulnerable to crime and abuse. But the reason why Obama thought that this cruel policy was necessary is because he was hoping that it would deter others from illegally crossing the border. So to understand how immigration policies in the United States continues to get objectively worse throughout the years, you have to look at each successive administration and see how it's not just all of a sudden Donald Trump decided to impose this fascistic and draconian policy, Bush and Obama, yes, Obama, paved the way for this type of cruelty. Their policies were a launching point for Donald Trump. It started with Bush, Obama took his policies, ramped them up, and now Trump is taking Obama's policies and ramping them up. The reason why people couldn't support someone like Hillary Clinton or didn't want to was because we didn't want to be complicit with these types of egregious policies. The same policies you're arguing against. Now look, I understand that Hillary was obviously the lesser of two evils in this situation. So if you live in a swing state and voted for her, I have no qualms with that whatsoever. In fact, I probably would have done the same thing myself. But myself, along with many others in solidly blue or red states, decided to vote for Jill Stein because we were hoping that if the Democratic Party establishment saw that the Green Party's vote share was rising, well, hopefully they'd move back to the left and not do these types of egregious policies that you're so outraged about. Democrats have also been implementing these types of right-wing xenophobic policies, and it's getting to the point where if you keep voting for the lesser of two evils, those two candidates are going to be indistinguishable from one another in maybe 10 years down the line. So people decided to take a stand in safe states. Now, some people in swing states still decided to vote for Jill Stein or Gary Johnson, but you don't blame them for coming out to vote. You blame the candidate that failed the voters, that abandoned the voters. And furthermore, I said this on Twitter, but she should be thanking Jill Stein voters because without Jill Stein, odds are a lot of people wouldn't have come out to vote at all. And if they did come out to vote, even if it was for Jill Stein, well, if you support Democrats, a lot, a lot of Green Party voters supported down-ticket Democrats. Now, someone responded to Kathy Griffin basically saying what I said, saying, quote, vote shaming is sheer hubris and not how you win elections. No candidate is entitled to votes that they didn't earn. This needs to stop. Weak candidates deserve your angst, not the voters that are fed up with a system that no longer serves them. And Kathy responded by saying, it's people like you who helped usher in Trump. I can't believe you still think this way. In other words, she totally disregarded everything that was said to her. Kathy, if you want to defeat Donald Trump, you've got to understand the situation that led to Donald Trump in the first place. But she just doesn't get it. See, prior to his presidency, Kathy Griffin was actually friendly with Donald Trump, like a lot of rich white celebrities that like to vote shame. The problem is both parties have become increasingly right-wing and corporatist, and when populations get desperate, they become increasingly susceptible to extremism. Trump capitalized on that and ultimately won because of it. Even though having a Democrat in the White House makes you feel better, Kathy, and helps you and your rich friends sleep better at night, 
People are still suffering and hurting. As the economy improved under Obama after the 2008 recession, guess what happened? Wages did not improve, Kathy. Income inequality worsened. Obama expanded the U.S. empire, all things he promised not to do. So after eight years of a Democratic administration, people realized that voting for the Democratic Party, no matter what, wasn't serving them well. Even though Democrats may be marginally better than Republicans... They're not good enough. They're not better or significantly different enough to stop voters from feeling angry at them or feeling angst towards the Democratic Party. So rather than directing her outrage towards the establishment and a party that failed voters, the powerful, she's choosing to direct her rage towards the powerless, people with no power, people who were fucked over by both Democratic and Republican administrations. Let me ask you this, Kathy. Rather than putting the onus, uh, or the burden, really, of getting Hillary Clinton elected over Donald Trump on everyone else, ask yourself what you did to help Hillary Clinton get elected. Rather than just tweeting about Hillary Clinton, did you actually canvas for Hillary Clinton? Did you go and deliver flyers for her? Did you phone bank for Hillary Clinton? What did you do specifically that would help Hillary Clinton get elected other than vote shame progressives? What did you do? Look in the mirror. Have some introspection if you really want to know what led to Donald Trump. Rich people like you, rich explaining to us how stupid we are for not supporting Hillary Clinton isn't going to make a difference. If you truly want to stop right-wing extremism in this country, like I do too, then you've got to start. By looking at the factors that got us here in this first place. But unfortunately for her, you know, that's something that's just too difficult to do. The easy thing is to vote shame. And that's why a lot of rich celebrities are resorting to it. So you can rich explain all you want, Kathy, but you're not making matters any better. You're just making things worse and making yourself look like a spoiled, rich, selfish brat. When Senator Tammy Duckworth was elected in 2016, I was actually pretty excited because she really positioned herself as a true progressive, as a Berniecrat. But now, to say that I'm perplexed by her actions would be an understatement, because I have no idea what has happened to Tammy Duckworth. I don't know what she's doing. So as you all know, Donald Trump recently met with Kim Jong-un, world news, huge historic event, and he agreed to stop doing war games. And he also hinted at the prospect of drawing down troops in South Korea, bringing them home. Well, what does Tammy Duckworth, along with one of her colleagues, Chris Murphy, decide to do in response to Trump trying to achieve peace? They attack Donald Trump from the right. So according to Ali Rogan of ABC News, she reports the new legislation from Senators Chris Murphy and Tammy Duckworth would prevent Trump from withdrawing troops from South Korea unless the Secretary of Defense says it's in the interest of national security and that it would not undermine the security of allies in the region. U.S. troops are not bargaining chips to be offered up in an offhanded manner, Duckworth said in a statement. During his summit with North Korean dictator Kim Jong-un, Trump announced the United States would be ending large-scale annual military exercises conducted with South Korea but insisted that the status 
of the 28,500 American soldiers on the peninsula is not up for negotiation. The two Democrats want their amendment added to the Senate's version of the National Defense Authorization Act, which sets military policy for the next fiscal year. The House's version already has a similar provision which would limit funds that can be used to reduce troop levels in South Korea, and the Senate includes a sense of the Senate provision stipulating that significant removal of the United States military forces from the Korean Peninsula is a non-negotiable item as it relates to North Korea's denuclearization. So in other words, what it seems like they're trying to do is tie Donald Trump's hands here. So if he wants to strike up a peace deal with Kim Jong-un, they're trying to stop him from doing anything that would allow for significant reduction of troops currently stationed in South Korea. Wow. Now, I do want to read Tammy Duckworth's tweets because I do think that they are telling. She states, U.S. troops are not bargaining chips to be offered up in any offhanded manner. The Kim regime is as dangerous today as they were six months ago, and they have done nothing to demonstrate that the threat they pose has lessened. Chris Murphy and I introed an amendment to prevent Donald Trump from withdrawing U.S. troops from South Korea unless it is in our national security interest and wouldn't undermine the security of our allies. Unilaterally ending our military's involvement on the the Korean Peninsula would hand Kim Jong-un a significant victory and put our allies in the region at risk. So understand that this isn't a policy that she is quietly trying to produce or that she's ashamed of. She's proud of it. She's tweeting about it and she's trying to show everyone just how anti-Trump she is by resisting him from the right. But I've got news for you, Tammy Duckworth, and really everyone who has bought into the propaganda of the United States uh, military-industrial complex. North Korea doesn't pose a threat. Yeah, I said it. Do you want to know who does pose a threat? We do. The only reason North Korea would be crazy enough to attack one of our allies was if they thought that a threat from us was imminent. So if Kim Jong-un got wind that the United States wanted to preemptively strike North Korea, then if he thought that his destruction was inevitable, he would launch on Seoul or Japan. And even though there's been numerous provocations and they do missile tests, again, Kim Jong-un, even though he is a maniac, he's still a self-interested actor. He wouldn't do something that would jeopardize his existence. So if you care about peace, you should be advocating for the United States to tone down saber rattling. And that includes, yes, ending useless war games that just piss off Kim Jong-un for no reason whatsoever. And withdrawing all of our troops and bringing them home, that's the right strategy. So, Tammy Duckworth clearly has a case of U.S. Empire-itis. She can't possibly fathom that the United States would be equally as outraged as North Korea is if they had troops stationed in Mexico or were doing joint military exercises with Canada. So this has to be, what, the millionth example now of Democrats resisting Donald Trump from the right? On one hand, they push this idea that he's a maniac, but the minute he signals the desire to de-escalate in Russia or in North Korea, they attack him from the right. Well, you can't have it both ways. Either he's a maniac that shouldn't saber-rattle against other countries and escalate tensions, or he's not a maniac that is fully capable of escalating tensions with hostile foreign powers, but ultimately would never make an impulsive decision with regard to foreign policy. You gotta pick one. 
You can't have it both ways, but that's what they're trying to do. And I want to share a tweet from journalist Walker Bragman, who points out just how disgusting this really is. So in 1973, in response to the Korean and Vietnam Wars, Democrats override a presidential veto to pass the War Powers Act, limiting the president's ability to wage war. In 2018... Well, in response to peace talks in Korea, Democrats try to limit the president's ability to make peace. So let me ask you this, Tammy Duckworth and Chris Murphy. Would you prefer dialogue with North Korea or would you just rather have Donald Trump go back to threats of fire and fury so you can call him a maniac again? Which, which, which way would you rather have it? Because it seems as though you don't want Donald Trump to pursue peace. Now, look, I'll reiterate what I said last week. I don't think Donald Trump is a competent negotiator at all. In fact, I think he's in over his head. I think he's a genuinely stupid human being. I think he has a low IQ and he's clearly mentally unstable. And he's joked about wishing American citizens would treat him in the same way that North Koreans treat Kim Jong-un and to sit up and give their attention to him when they see him. I mean, which is incredibly disturbing because he's basically joking about wanting to be as powerful as the leader of a totalitarian country with literal concentration camps. But with all that being said, so long as he's trying to achieve peace and no longer threatens them every other week on Twitter with threats of nuclear annihilation or fire and fury, that's still an improvement, wouldn't you say? I mean, I, I honestly don't know what to say. They're literally trying to stop Donald Trump from de-escalating tensions with North Korea. I guess they'd prefer fire and fury again. I guess they would prefer the prospect of nuclear war with North Korea every other week as he threatens them on Twitter. I mean... How absurd do you have to be? If you think Donald Trump is a maniac, then certainly, why would you want a maniac to continue this aggressive U.S. stance towards North Korea? Wouldn't you want him to tone down the aggressive rhetoric and do things that would potentially facilitate peace? Well, the answer is no, because they're literally trying to tie his hands so he can't do things that would specifically make a peace deal possible. Unbelievable. And... Tammy Duckworth loves to pretend like she's the most anti-Trump person in the world. A few months ago, what did she do? She voted to expand Donald Trump's power to unilaterally spy on American citizens. She does that, and then the next day she goes and criticizes him and calls him Cadet Bone Spurs. Well, are you anti-Trump or not? She didn't go and boast, mind you, about giving Donald Trump more spying power. She was silent about that. So, I mean, to say that I'm disappointed in her... That's obviously the case. She's someone who pretended to be a progressive, but now we know either that was all an act or she's been co-opted by the Democratic Party and uh, establishment and the military industrial complex. So shame on Tammy Duckworth. Shame on Chris Murphy. I'm less disappointed in him because I already knew he was a sellout. But Tammy, this is a new low for her. So we've got a story that confirms that we live in an oligarchy. We live in a country where large multinational corporations dictate policy outcomes in this country. And it's not just that political science studies confirm this, but we have countless anecdotal examples to demonstrate just how much control large multinational corporations have 
over governing bodies across the United States. It's it's so disgusting. This is really one of the most disturbing articles I've read in a while. So, according to Elizabeth Weiss, just months after Seattle passed a controversial corporate head tax aimed at Amazon and other large businesses that would have funded homeless programs, the city council voted to rescind the plan Tuesday afternoon. The about-face comes after a ferocious backlash by some of the biggest companies in town. The vote was taken after more than two hours of heated and emotional testimony on the part of those who support the tax and those who felt it would damage the city's businesses and scare investment away. In Seattle, a 4% rise in homelessness in the past year as rents have risen has been the flashpoint for these issues. A tally of the homeless conducted in January by the All Home Coalition found 8,599 people living in the streets and vehicles in abandoned buildings or in tents in the city. That helped lead to the May 14th vote by the council that unanimously passed a measure requiring companies with revenues of more than $20 million a year to pay an annual $275 tax per employee. The vote came after weeks of hearings, demonstrations, heated public meetings, and a threat by Amazon to stop construction of its newest Seattle Tower and to pull out of leasing another. But pushback from Amazon, Starbucks, and other large firms resulted in a surprise swerve by the council on Monday when its president, Bruce Harrell, announced he had scheduled a special meeting on Tuesday about a repeal of the tax. And we know how the story ends. They ultimately voted to repeal this tax. Now, what's hilarious to me is that the mayor of Seattle and most city council members, they came out and um, they released a statement saying, we hear you, you know, we've heard you loud and clear. I'm paraphrasing, but essentially they were trying to make it seem as though they were listening to their constituents when it was pretty obvious they just caved to pressure from Amazon and Starbucks the richest corporations in the country. Now, to be fair, there were citizens that vocally opposed this measure, and even though this measure wouldn't hurt smaller businesses since it only applied to big businesses making more than $20 million per year, the only reason why this tax impacted jobs at all was because Amazon was literally holding jobs hostage in protest of this tax. So these useful idiots protesting this took the side of Amazon rather than protesting Amazon for holding up these jobs and instead decided to protest a tax that would have fought against the city's ridiculous homeless crisis. I mean, you can't pass through Seattle without seeing just how big of an issue this is. So congratulations to every single person who came out to protest this law at the behest of Amazon, whose CEO Jeff Bezos is the richest human being in the world you just did the bidding of the richest company because they were throwing a tantrum and didn't want to pay slightly higher taxes to fight homelessness good job do you feel good about yourself fucking over the homeless because you decided to take the side of a multinational corporation that was holding jobs hostage in protest of this do you feel good unreal so what are you going to do about homelessness if you don't support this tax just going to let it continue to get worse and worse and worse your city is one of the worst in the country, which is why this law was necessary and morally right. But instead, there were some people, I don't know if they're AstroTurf, I don't want to be like Republicans and claim that, you know, they were fake protesters, but corporations do often fund AstroTurf. But some people decided to come out and support Amazon. However, there were a lot of people who really supported this tax because it was the right thing to do.
And Seattle is a very liberal city, so obviously this tax appeased a lot of people. But when they decided to repeal this tax, they were justifiably outraged at the fact that their city council, who they elected, who's supposed to represent them, caved to Amazon. You don't represent Amazon. You, re you represent your constituents, including the homeless constituents. But you decided to give in to Amazon because you have no spines whatsoever. It's so disgusting. They should all resign in shame. So there were people that were protesting the city council's decision to repeal this tax. And one resident in particular made it clear just how angry he was. And I think it's safe to say that this individual spoke for everyone. All right, I don't got long. I'm a dad, so I got a kid to take care of. What's up, bootlickers? I haven't seen y'all since the camp out. I got something to say, right? I'm tired of this fucking shit. I'm a father, I'm a veteran, and I'm anarchist. Those are three people you don't want to piss off. All right? I'm tired of children getting attacked in the streets. I'm tired of them sleeping in the fucking streets. I'm tired sure, of seeing the very people here, that I swore to defend get attacked by the state. So like I said out there, y'all need to close your fucking beaks and start moving your feet and get shit done. Take resources and put them in the hands of the people who need them. All right? Seriously. The fuck is wrong with y'all? Who the fuck are y'all to justify letting people die in the streets with your policies and your laws and your legislation? How do you justify that, killing people? I swore to give my life to defend the people from all forms of oppression. Eventually, this shit's going to stop. Because it's our turn. We won't make excuses for the terror. Marks. That was truly amazing. That individual is a patriot who voiced how all of us feel. I've got to go through some of the things he said. He approached them as, what's up, bootlickers? <laughs> that couldn't be more perfect because they are bootlickers. They're corporate bootlickers. He said, you all need to close your fucking beaks, start moving your feet, and get shit done. Take resources and put them in the hands of people who need them. And he looked at them and he said, seriously, the fuck is wrong with y'all? That's exactly, I think, how we need to start talking to politicians. That's basically the level of respect that is owed to these corporate shills that are serving in governing bodies across the country. Your state legislature, Congress, these are corporate shills. These are the types of cowards that are ruining this country. They refuse to stand up to corporate interests, and that's when they haven't just been outright co-opted by corporations through campaign contributions. And it's gotten so bad that we've lost our democracy. We live in a corporate state where elections are somewhat free and fair to the extent that those candidates running have been vetted extensively by large multinational corporations. And even though we do have power changes in this country, our government never stops serving large multinational corporations. And we have countless examples of this. And it's why the Democratic Party's mealy-mouthed incremental approach to policy isn't going to suffice given how fucked up our country currently is. So the individual who ripped the Seattle City Council was speaking for all of us. Um, you sounded more like a socialist than an anarchist, but whatever you call yourself, you were speaking truth to power and I commend you for it. I wish more people would get involved and really let their elected officials know how they feel because you are their boss, even though they frequently serve large multinational corporations like Amazon and Starbucks, you elect them. So if they fuck up, it's on you to hold them accountable. 
In a recent interview with Marketplace, FCC Chairman Ajit Pai actually claimed that the United States' citizens support his pro-corporate anti-net neutrality agenda. He literally claimed this and he reiterated it and doubled down. Now, according to a December 2017 poll from the University of Maryland, they found that 83% of the public supports net neutrality. And yes, that includes both Republicans and Democrats. But in spite of that, he insists that the public is with him on this issue. So this is how Ajit Pai responded when a journalist asked him about just how unpopular his decision to repeal net neutrality is. So they say, this is not a popular decision. Millions of people have written in opposition to it. Public opinion polling shows most Americans favor net neutrality, not your open internet rule. And I wonder why you're doing this then. If public opinion is against you, what are you doing? Pai says, first of all, public opinion is not against us. If you look at some of the polls, and then they interrupt saying, no, it is, sir, come on. Pai then says, if you look at some of the polling, if you dig down and see how these polls were constructed, it was clearly designed to reach a particular result. But even beyond that, and then they interrupt again, saying, it's not just one, there are many surveys, sir. Pai then says the FCC's job is not to put a finger in the wind and decide which way the winds are blowing. It's to look at the facts and make a sober judgment based on what the law is, and that is exactly what we've done here. Moreover, the long-term interest is in building better, faster, cheaper internet access. That is what consumers say when I travel around the country, and I've spoken to consumers in Los Angeles to the reservation in South Dakota, places like Dahlonega, Georgia. That is what is on consumers' minds. That is what this regulatory framework is going to deliver. Now, I think if any other person said what he just said, I'd think that they were delusional. But because it's Ajit Pai, we know he's just lying through his teeth. So after the journalist corrects him and says, come on, this is ridiculous. Of course, the public doesn't support your pro-corporate agenda. Well, here's what he says. Well, you know what? They actually want faster and cheaper access to the internet. And while that's technically true, his version of cheaper internet is basically allowing Comcast, for example, to disaggregate the internet and sell you a social media package with Facebook and Twitter only for 10 bucks a month. And then he'll say, look, that's cheaper internet. Now people can have access to Facebook. More people than ever are now going on Facebook. When the internet isn't like television, what it is what he's trying to turn it into. The internet should be sold as one thing. And if you allow these internet service providers to disaggregate the internet and sell packages and throttle access to websites they don't like or their competitors, then you are reducing freedom on the internet. You're making the internet less open. But he claims, oh, well, you know what? I actually care about the open internet. And Ironically enough, the name of uh, the order to repeal net neutrality is called Restoring Open Internet Order or Restoring Freedom on the Internet Order, some Orwellian titled bill. But Ajit, we don't agree with what you want to do. We are vociferously against you. And I mean, a simple thing you can do to see just how much the public not only disagrees with Ajit Pai, but hates him. Look at his Twitter feed. Every time he posts some weird, like benign, banal thing, all the comments are about net neutrality. When you look at any interview he's done with CBS or Fox News, the like to dislike ratio is always insane. Now, the reason why Americans don't like you, Ajit Pai, isn't 
because of personal reasons. We despise you because you're doing everything in your power to screw over consumers and strip away consumer protections when you lead an agency that's supposed to regulate an industry you're shilling for. And to show you just how much of a corporate shill Ajit Pai is, well, there's another scandal involving him this week involving Sinclair. So as Gizmodo's DJ Dellinger reports, fresh off finally completing the goal of killing net neutrality protections, Ajit Pai's Federal Communications Commission is onto its next attempt to destroy long-standing rules that have protected American consumers. According to Bloomberg, the FCC is planning on sneaking in a vote to change limits on how many television stations a single company can own own to make way for Sinclair Broadcast Group's massive takeover of local broadcasting. Per the report, FCC Chairman Ajit Pai intends to schedule a vote on July 12th to alter the current cap on the reach of a single broadcaster. The vote would allow the FCC to get out ahead of the United States Court of Appeals, which is currently hearing a case challenging part of the current rules that limit station ownership. The vote would allow the FCC to leapfrog the courts and put its own ruling forward first. The vote would tackle a decades-old rule, first introduced in the 1970s, that attended to prevent massive media mergers that would allow a single company to control the majority of the airwaves across the country. These regulations set the cap at 39% of all households, but Pi is ready to blow that up in order to do a favor for Sinclair or broadcast with the conservative bent that has been intent on gobbling up as much control of local markets as possible. Pi hasn't publicly expressed where he believes the media ownership bar should be, but odds are good it'll be around 72% since that's how far Sinclair's reach would become if its proposed $6.6 billion acquisition of Tribune Media is allowed to pass. The merger would allow Sinclair to gain access to 42 new stations and markets, which it could use to blast out its now infamous must-run segments like the bizarre promo about fake news it forced anchors to read earlier this year. Now, think about just how shameless Ajit Pai is. The average American, under as much scrutiny as he's facing, would choose to just sit this one out. Let the U.S. Court of Appeals make its decision. Don't do anything that could be perceived as you helping Sinclair uh, because you're already under scrutiny, but he doesn't care. He doesn't care at all. He has no shame whatsoever. He doesn't think about how bad the optics look or how terrible his agency will look. He's literally intervening specifically to assist a company he's supposed to be regulating. That is how brazenly corrupt this individual is. I mean, I made a comment on Twitter about him basically being on Scott Pruitt's level of corruption, but I think he might actually be more corrupt than Scott Pruitt. You're trying to bolster Sinclair's legal argument by changing regulations so that way they're empowered as they go into the U.S. Court of Appeals. I mean, it literally doesn't get more shameless than that. I can't think of another example. He is the most corrupt person in our government right now. But he doesn't even care about the optics. Unbelievable. So getting back to the original discussion, no, we're not in favor of what you're doing. You don't have the public support. You don't have a mandate, Ajit Pai. All you're doing is the bidding of your former employer and the internet service providers and that's all you're doing. You're a corporate shill. You are an empty suit doing nothing but representing the interests of the industry you're supposed to be regulating. You should be impeached.
In fact, you should have resigned in shame for how disgustingly corrupt you are. But there should be calls from every lawmaker in the country calling on you to either resign or be impeached because this is completely indefensible. You are as corrupt as they come. And the fact that you're still going out of your way to spit in the eyes of Americans shows just how disgusting and ruthless of a person you are. Shame on you, Ajit Pai. So last year, as you all know, California had a lot of momentum moving towards a single-payer healthcare bill until Anthony Rendon, a Democrat who claimed to support Medicare for All, unilaterally killed it. And now we're seeing a similar situation occur. So I've talked about California's progress with regard to net neutrality and how if they codify the current bill that they have into law, it would be the strongest net neutrality bill the country has ever seen. But guess what's happening? One Democrat, this individual, Miguel Santiago, might single-handedly kill that bill. So in a Medium post by Fight for the Future, they explain a single California Democrat could be personally responsible for the death of net neutrality. Assembly member and chairman of the Communications and Conveyance Committee, Miguel Santiago, is caving to pressure from AT&T and Comcast lobbyists and blocking overwhelmingly popular state-level legislation that would restore net neutrality in the immediate wake of Trump administration's repeal of open internet protections. Santiago has received $43,900 in funding from the telecom sector, and AT&T is his number five contributor over his assembly career. So it's no surprise that he wants to gut SB 822 and add gaping loopholes that ISPs asked for, and he thinks no one will care. Specifically, Assemblyman Santiago wants to amend SB 822 to allow, one, ISPs to be able to charge any website any amount of money simply so that website can be used by that ISP subscriber. These are called access fees, and the U.S. internet has never had them. They were explicitly banned by the FCC in 2010 and 2015. Two, allow ISPs to throttle online services and websites at the point where data enters their networks. ISPs did this in 2013 to 2015, slowing down business services, online games, and video for tens of millions of Americans until the FCC order in 2015 put a stop to it. 3. Allow AT&T and Time Warner and Comcast and NBC Universal to use their pipes to make their content win by making all other online content count against your data caps, but not their own. That kind of zero rating scheme hurts everyone and gives them even more incentive to keep your data caps artificially low. So essentially, he wants to strip away that provision against zero rating from this bill that makes California's legislation so special, that makes it the strongest in the nation. And furthermore, he wants to allow loopholes in this bill that would make the entire bill itself basically null and void. The whole point of net neutrality is to stop internet service providers from blocking, from throttling, and he's trying to allow them to do that in a bill that's supposed to save net neutrality. Unbelievable. Now, by the time you see this segment, it could be the case that maybe he had a change of heart. I don't know how this is going to play out, but certainly, uh, I don't have to remind you that this isn't the first attempt by a Democratic lawmaker in California to water down their net neutrality law, because lobbyists for AT&T, Verizon, and Comcast, they are working 
over time to defeat state legislative attempts to protect net neutrality. Because a lot of states aren't listening to the FCC's preemption rule that blocks states from passing their own net neutrality. They're doing it anyway, and now lobbyists are trying to stop them. So, if you want to make a difference, we need to take action immediately to stop Miguel from listening to his donors. His capital office phone number is 916-319-2053. I'm not in California, but I will call because it's just, it's so wrong. This phone mail system. If you would like to leave a message for someone, dial their extension and then push pound. Or enter the last name followed by first name until recognized. To access your own mailbox, just push pound. To transfer out of phone mail, push zero. Okay, so that didn't work out. I'm going to um, try to call his district office. That number is 213-620-4646. Thank you for calling the office of Assemblymember Miguel Santiago. For English, please hold. Para Español, por favor, oprima el ocho. You have reached our office outside of normal business hours. Our normal business hours are Monday through Friday from 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. To leave a voicemail in our general mailbox, please press zero. To reach our staff directory, please press star. That mailbox is full. Thank you for of calling course. the office of Assemblymember Miguel Santiago. For English, please hold. Para Español, por favor, oprima el ocho. Yep, so his mailbox is full. Uh... So his mailbox is full, and according to Fight for the Future, um, it seems like he's refusing to answer his phone, and um, we can tweet to him. His Twitter handle is at SantiagoAD53. That's at Santiago, S-A-N-T-I-A-G-O-A-D-53. Um, and tweet to him, and um, do what you can, because... He knows what he's doing is incredibly unpopular because he's a shill. He's literally shilling. I mean, this is the definition of a sellout and a corporate shill. He took money from these companies and they're now telling him to water down this law and he's doing their bidding. So this is the definition of a shill. So uh, keep trying. Tweet at him. He knows this is unpopular, so I probably can guess that he's going to do what he can to avoid our calls and avoid our tweets not look at twitter but we've got to find a way to reach out to him because this is this is absolutely indefensible what he's doing is morally reprehensible and he's betraying his own constituents do you think that the liberal voters in california in his district don't want net neutrality even most republicans support net neutrality so by doing this he's just being a corporate shill it doesn't get any more cor corrupt than this so shame on you miguel santiago uh if you if you're seeing this video keep trying um i hope he's gonna do the right thing California has been successful at thwarting off attempts to water down this bill before because I think that the author of this legislation, Scott Wiener, has done a fantastic job at really rallying support for it. But at the end of the day, these are powerful corporate forces that we're dealing with, and they have a lot of puppets in state legislatures across the country. So um, understand that this is what you can expect if your state tries to pass legislation protecting you from net neutrality and the fact that they want these loopholes specifically in place that allow them to charge access fees. 
that kind of gives you a hint of what to expect um, in the coming years. So um, thanks to JeetPi for doing all this. I hope that the money is going to be worth fucking over the internet for generations to come. Disgusting. It's now 4.20 p.m. PST on Wednesday, and we've got a really unfortunate update to this bill. It is now officially dead. So as Mashable reports, SB 822 has passed through committee, including Assemblyman Santiago's edits. According to Fight for the Future, Santiago put it up for a vote before the hearing began. It passed 8-0 to zero with all Democrats on the committee voting alongside Republicans. The bill's original author, Senator Scott Weiner, was reportedly stunned and called the mutilated bill a fake net neutrality bill. Now an update um, to that story is that they got a response from Santiago's office. So um, when asked about whether campaign donations in any way influenced assembly member Santiago's legislative actions, his office issued the following statement. This is the legislative process at work. Any suggestions of actions taken today somehow being otherwise motivated are irresponsible at best and insulting beyond that. Wow. Well, you know what? You should be insulted. You're a fucking shill, Miguel Santiago. And if you are in California, if this individual represents you, you need to go to his office and ask him to his face why he decided to do the bidding of AT&T against the overwhelming majority of his own constituents. I mean, Democrats, they are in control of everything in California. And they voted with Republicans to gut it. This is absolutely outrageous. So there's going to be more on this to come. But for now, I just wanted to give you guys this update, which is just so disgusting. We really didn't even have time to mobilize. You know, after finding out about this, just days later, they voted to gut it. Really, really fucking disgusting. Um, This guy is a disgrace. Every single Democrat that voted re- with Republicans, I mean, you guys have to vote these disgusting sellouts out immediately. Joe Crowley is a corporate Democrat representing New York's 14th Congressional District, and he's currently being primaried by a very progressive challenger named Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Now, they actually had a debate, albeit it only lasted for 20 minutes, but nonetheless, it was still great. And I think that he learned very quickly that this debate was not a good idea for him because she did a phenomenal job cornering him and calling out his blatant corruption. So at one point in this debate, they both had an opportunity to ask the other a question. And Alexandria asked him how voters can trust that he's going to represent their interests when he's taken so much corporate money. And really, he had no idea how to answer that question, so he quickly pivoted to a different subject. My question is, how can working families in our district trust that uh, you can fight for them when it matters? You know, we have an administration here that um, that is obviously dangerous, but it's not enough to fight Trump. We have to fight the issues that made his rise in the first place. Oh, I, I see things a little differently. Uh, uh, when it came to the issue of Dodd-Frank, I bucked against the tide mm-hmm. of Wall Street, of big banks, when I supported, and not only supported, but helped author the Dodd-Frank legislation. Mm-hmm. And we can talk to Barney Frank, he'll tell you exactly how engaged I was in helping make that become law. 
against their, uh, the interests of Wall Street and the banks. I bucked the system when I supported the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare, and I know you have some issues with it. Uh, I stood shoulder to shoulder with Barack Obama to make sure that that became the law of the land. That now 131,000 people in this district now have insurance that didn't have prior to that. And we largely, Errol, I think, agree on the issues. There really isn't much daylight and separation between the two of us. But there is an issue where we do disagree, and that is on the issue of guns. Because my opponent has said that she doesn't believe that the laws of New York City should be or can be applicable necessarily to the laws of New Mexico. She said that the flexibility would need to be... Uh, uh, that's incorrect. Uh, no, that's, Where'd we, you get that? People can read it on Reddit at a forum. On Reddit? On Reddit, on a forum <laughs> on that, you, okay. that you participated in. But I listen, I just think that that's wrong. I think we need a national approach. We need to end, mm. we need to end bump stocks. We need to end automatic uh, weapons and uh, bring back the assault weapons ban. We need to have full background checks without any loopholes. That's the way in which I think we need to approach this okay. issue. So we just simply disagree. So, um, I, you know, aside from trolling internet forums, um, I think that one of the things that we need to really take a look at. Let me make things very clear. I believe in a ban on assault weapons. I believe in a ban on bump stocks. Not only that, I also don't take money from private equity groups that have holdings in gun manufacturers either. So I think that this really doesn't even come close and there is no daylight here. You know, there in, in terms of uh, in terms of the fact that, you know, we're, neither person sitting here at this table is a Republican. Errol, I, I, I do think that the folks in, in Parkland, they don't believe in flexibility. The folks in Newtown, they don't believe in flexibility. And the people here in New York don't believe in flexibility either. If you can go to Pennsylvania, it has different laws in New York City, and dump guns in the back. 74% of the guns on the streets in New York City come from outside the city. Flexibility is not the answer here. Now, as you'll come to see, this really, this dodge and pivot was his strategy throughout the whole debate. He literally pulled a Hillary Clinton where he pretended to be more progressive than his very progressive opponent by saying, well, look, I'm the individual that you've got to elect if you support gun reform. Now, unfortunately, that didn't work out too well for him because she stated, not only do I agree with all of the issues you just listed, but I also don't take money from private equity groups that have holdings in gun manufacturers either. And I think that at that very moment when she said that, Joe Crowley's soul died. You can literally see it <laughs> in the debate. That was... I mean, that was a brilliant move by Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez because he tried desperately to make it seem as though he's to the left of her on this one issue, but it backfired immensely. Uh, that was great. Um, <laughs> I mean, I don't know how you recover from that. Now, what he tried to do was he said, well, look, you did this AMA on Reddit where you said that there should be flexibility with respect to gun reform. Now, she didn't know initially what he was talking about, and I don't blame her because when you go back to her comment about guns, she only briefly brought up the subject and tangentially discussed the idea of flexibility on gun control in other states. So when one user asked her how she'd hear and act on policies she doesn't necessarily agree with, but her constituents do, this is what she said. It's much easier to do this when you are grassroots supported. You have to listen to your constituents because your ear isn't being monopolized by special interests. We borrow ideas from both sides of the aisle that are effective and common sense for everyone. I do think my personal background helps with this. For example, I am a third generation Bronxite and happen to be Latina, but I am also the goddaughter of an Irish NYPD police officer. I have family members who are detectives and male cousins who have been unfairly stopped and frisked. 
I also have a healthy view on personal opinion, which is that it shouldn't govern without consensus. For example, locally, I happen to support NYC's more strict take on gun control, but I also believe that there needs to be flexibility on the national level. NYC isn't New Mexico. My personal philosophy is that congressional representatives' duty is to represent new ideas to their constituents and use town halls and other forms of communication to lead together. So that is the teeny tiny little comment that uh, Joe Crowley decided to dig up on his opponent because there's not much else. Now, just based on that, I'm inclined to disagree with her because if you actually want gun laws to be effective, then they should be the same in all 50 states. But with that being said, to extrapolate what he extrapolated out of that and to dig that up when she really was only mentioning gun control in passing, it really shows just how desperate he is to dig up any dirt he possibly can on Alexandria. You can tell that he was scouring all corners of the internet to find whatever he possibly could to attack her on. And all that came up was this comment she made referencing gun laws. And if I had made that comment and someone brought it up to me, I probably wouldn't have remembered it too because... Again, it was such a short comment she made in passing that she brought up only in reference to a different issue. And her comment, again, even though I'm inclined to disagree with what I can see or what I interpret her response to be, it's still a perfectly reasonable stance to have. So there was another instance where um, Crowley's corporate cash came up. And he again quickly tried to dodge the question and pivot to another issue. And once again, she backed him right into a corner. I want to pick up on something you, you su suggested before about the, the PACs and some of the, the corporate and real estate interests that have supported your opponent. Uh, isn't it true that one person's special interest is another's legitimate community voice, right? I mean, if elected, would you refuse to take money, say, from uh, labor union PACs? Well, I have reject. I reject all corporate PACs. So what that means is uh, corporations that lobby for special for their own special interests. But I have worked with political PACs um, in order to get uh, to get things done when they are constituted by people. But corporation as corporations and corporate PACs are really are really the real problem. About 99% of my opponents' donations come from corporations, big money, and lobbyist groups. And 80% of all of my donations to my campaign are less than $200. Uh, that, that just isn't true. Uh, the people of this district know me. They know my work ethic. They know where my heart lies. Uh, and that's why they've sent me back to Congress uh, again and again, and I believe they will again, uh, because of what we're, what we're threatened with right now. And what, what we need right now is experience. Uh, and someone who can be a champion and a proven leader in Washington. I'm a proven leader. I'm in the House Democratic leadership. I'm poised at this point in time to take on uh, this president, and I've been doing that just like I did this week when I marched in protest against what's happening at our nation's border, where this government is separating children from their mothers. It is antithetical to everything that I believe in, and that's what I fight for every and day. And you know what? If this organization is as fascist as you have called it, I've said it's fascist. and you have said it's fascist, then why don't you uh, adopt the stance to eliminate it? This is a moral problem and your response has been to apply more paperwork to this situation to have ice collect more information on immigrants and that puts our communities in danger and it also conveys a profound misunderstanding of how we should be approaching this problem you, 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 you want to abolish, abolish ice what would be what i would suggest about that and kamala harris today came out in opposition to this because she knows as i do that simply abolishing the agency doesn't take it out of the hands of Jeff Sessions or this president. 
We know it's about making change in Washington. It's about Democrats taking back control of the House of Representatives. And that's what I'm about doing. Now, when she said that about 99% of his campaign contributions come from big money corporations and lobbyist groups, he denied that. And he's just brazenly lying because literally less than 1% of his donations, 0.79% to be exact, come from small donors. That small dark blue sliver on the left of the bar that you see there represents his small dollar donors. And it's basically nothing. So literally all the other money he's receiving, more than 99% of campaign contributions comes from big money donors. So it's true. And to deny that is a bold-faced lie. I mean, this is a verifiable fact that Alexandria brought up and rightfully so. But according to Joe Crowley, that's not a problem because quote, the people of this district know me. They know my work ethic. They know where my heart is. Right. So, um, they know where your heart, heart lies, so you can just take all the corporate cash you want to, and it's not going to be a problem because they know that deep down inside, you're a good person. They know where your heart lies. But that is an empty platitude because, yes, I believe your constituents do know where your heart lies with large multinational corporations, with the military-industrial complex, who you continuously support and bolster and vote in favor of. So to say that is one of the most embarrassing dodges ever, but we get to the real dodge where he brings up, which is Trump's immigration policies, which is precisely when Alexandria dealt him the death blow by calling him out for not advocating for the abolition of ICE. So he proceeded to pretend to be outraged by Donald Trump's fascistic immigration policies, but he won't support the abolition of what's basically American Gestapo, ICE. I mean, this guy is so full of shit, you can probably smell it on his breath. What a liar. What a disingenuous prick this guy is. So look, in conclusion, I had Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez on my show last year, and I would highly encourage you to watch that interview. I'll link to it down below. She's one of the best candidates I think I've ever seen hands down, and I don't just mean that in terms of her having what I think is an effective political strategy, an electoral strategy, but she's as progressive as they come. She supports ranked choice voting, and I have no doubt in my mind that she would be a progressive champion in Congress. So if you want to support her, if you want to defeat a lying corporatist shill like Jill Crowley, you can visit Ocasio2018.com and donate to her campaign and help give her a boost in this last stretch of her campaign because we've got to get people like Joe Crowley out. I think progressives have been really demoralized that a lot of these primaries haven't gone their way because time after time, corporate Democrats, incumbent Democrats specifically, they have more name recognition and they are outraising they're progressive challengers by pretty significant margins, and as a result, they're winning by very significant margins. So, make a difference. Help and uh, contribute to Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's campaign. I'll leave you with what I think is one of the best political ads ever created from Alexandria. Women like me aren't supposed to run for office. I wasn't born to a wealthy or powerful family. Mother from Puerto Rico, dad from the South Bronx. I was born in a place where your zip code determines your destiny. My name is Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. I'm an educator, an organizer, a working class New Yorker, 
I've worked with expectant mothers, I've waited tables, and led classrooms. And going into politics wasn't in the plan. But after 20 years of the same representation, we have to ask, who has New York been changing for? Every day gets harder for working families like mine to get by. The rent gets higher, healthcare covers less, and our income stays the same. It's clear that these changes haven't been for us, and we deserve a champion. It's time to fight for a New York that working families can afford. That's why I'm running for Congress. This race is about people versus money. We've got people, they've got money. It's time we acknowledge that not all Democrats are the same. That a Democrat who takes corporate money, profits off foreclosure, doesn't live here, doesn't send his kids to our schools, doesn't drink our water or breathe our air, cannot possibly represent us. What the Bronx and Queens needs is Medicare for all, tuition-free public college, a federal jobs guarantee and criminal justice reform. We can do it now. It doesn't take 100 years to do this. It takes political courage. A New York for the many is possible. It's time for one of us. Vote for Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez on June 26th. Hey everyone, so I am here with Congressman Ro Khanna of California's 17th Congressional District. And Ro decided to do something that a politician has never done. One, come on the Humanist Report podcast. And two, actually respond when I angrily tweeted at him. Because I angrily tweet at politicians all the time. Ro's the first person that reached out and we had a conversation. So Ro, thank you so much for coming on the program. Well, thanks for having me on. Yeah, I'm, I'm very glad to have you, um, and I appreciate the fact that you're choosing to actually have a conversation and communicate with progressives rather than run away from us. So I do want to ask, because according to journalist Cameron Joseph of Talking Points Memo, he reports that you and Joe Crowley had a relatively heated debate on the House floor, and I think we all know that this is because of your dual endorsement of him and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. So the question really that I have for you, and I think a lot of people want to know, is if we know that you're kind of in this awkward situation where if you endorse a progressive, you anger your colleagues, but if you endorse one of your colleagues, basically outrage progressives, as you now know. So why not sit this one out? Well, in retrospect, I uh, probably should have sat it out. Uh, that uh, uh, would have been the wise decision. Uh, I had worked with uh, Joe on legalizing marijuana, uh, a bill with Barbara Lee. Uh, he was supportive. I had visited his district, and we had done something together in Queens on the digital divide and helping people get pathways to tech jobs who didn't have a college degree, of minority backgrounds. Uh, and so when he asked uh, for my support, I didn't think much of it, and I uh, offered it. Uh, I uh, then came to learn about uh, uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez uh, through the video that just went viral uh, probably a month ago, uh, and she's an extraordinary candidate. She's uh, you know going to be a star in the Democratic Party, in my view, regardless of the progressive movement, regardless of uh, the outcome of this race, whether she wins or loses. Uh, and so I wanted to basically get to a position of neutrality, and the way I thought 
uh, I could do it, given that I had endorsed Joe Crowley, was to endorse her, affirm her story. You know, I ran against an incumbent Democrat, actually, three times. I ran and lost when I was 27 against the war in Iraq, uh, against a Democratic incumbent who voted for the war. And then I ran against a Democratic incumbent twice uh, later on and lost my uh, first time and won the second time. And in none of those three races did I ever have a federal elected official uh, even acknowledge me, let alone endorse me. And I thought, you know, I wanted to do something for uh, Alexandria to acknowledge her, her incredible story. Right. And and understand that even though you received a lot of backlash, um, progressives, I mean, I don't speak for everyone, of course, but myself, I was actually very pleased that you did respond and you adjusted your position because I think that trying to make it right does show that you are listening to progressives, even if we may not agree on every single issue ever. I do think that that does, that does say something. So I do appreciate that. I do want to get to a criticism that um, a candidate does have of you. And I wanted to ask you about this. So... Rosa Calderon, she's a congressional candidate that ran in California's 4th Congressional District, and she actually was really frustrated with you because when they asked for your endorsement, according to your campaign manager, she said that you only endorse on the basis of money, and she also said that you've worked against Justice Democrats, fellow Justice Democrats, an organization uh, organization that you're part of before, too, and she kind of has a point because, I mean, you did endorse Kevin DeLeon, over Diane Feinstein, which, I mean, you had the right instinct to not endorse Feinstein, but you still didn't endorse the Justice Democrat. So how do you respond to people like Rosa Calderon who don't feel as though you've done enough to come out to support progressives or in instances where you could have done the right thing, you didn't? Well, I, I'm actually proud of my endorsement in that race for Jessica Bortz. Uh, I can discuss why. Uh, but, you know, first on, on the issue of progressive candidates, I've endorsed probably 14 to 15 justice democrats that's uh just a matter of record i uh, by far more than uh any other house member uh, I, I mean I, I literally if you talk to the uh justice democrats board they'll tell you the 14 or 15 candidates uh that i've endorsed and i've endorsed people uh, like mary newman uh, in the bill lipinski case laura moser but why sit out a race in California, uh, or not sit out, but why not endorse someone like David Hildebrand or Allison Hartson, a Justice Democrat, over Kevin DeLeon? Because even though he is absolutely to the left of Dianne Feinstein, he's nowhere near as progressive as Allison Hartson. So why endorse him over Hartson? Well, I think Allison will tell you I said good things about her. I had endorsed Kevin. I had written, I was the first person to call for Feinstein not to run. Uh, the first person to break from the entire California delegation and endorse uh, against Feinstein. I endorsed Ale- uh, Kevin DeLeon before Allison Artson had even entered uh, the race. Uh, I was on CNN and in the Mercury News always saying good things about Allison Artson because she doesn't take any corporate money or any PAC money. But I had stuck with my endorsement for Kevin DeLeon, partly because I'd endorsed before Allison was even in, in the race, and partly because I wanted... Uh, to make sure that a progressive or a, a Democrat got into the top two. And I thought uh, Kevin had the best shot. I didn't want a situation where Diane was uh, going to be with a Republican. Uh, and I made that judgment. But I think the bigger issue is that I was, uh, me and Jimmy Gomez, or the, Jimmy Gomez and I were the only two members of Congress in the entire delegation to be willing to support uh, against Feinstein. And, you know, every time I was asked about Allison, I said I, you know, endorsed Kevin, but I, said good things about her 
Now, the race with Rosa Calderon, you know, Jessica Morse uh, was a terrific candidate. I mean, she's a veteran. She, I, I spoke to her. She shared a lot of progressive views. I thought she had the best chance of uh, winning that district. Uh, she won the primary. Uh, and, and it's just a judgment I had made. And when I accepted Justice Democrats' uh, endorsement, I had made it very clear that, you know, I can't just support blanket the entire slate. I don't think anyone should blanket support a slate. That's sure. Is, bad is defaulting to an incumbent slate sure. i think you should have the judgment in a case-by-case basis but if you talk to them and we'll put it out there I've, i have supported at least 14 to 15 justice democrats across this country most of them in fact haven't won so it's not been some st- strategic thing it's if i have liked their candidacies and have liked their values but let me ask you this because you said that your decision to endorse kevin de leon was contingent on the fact that you think that he probably had the better chance of winning, but one, don't you think? One of the factors, yeah. But don't you think that if you endorsed Allison Hartson, you would have given her a boost? And furthermore, doesn't that sound like the same argument that they told us in 2016 about Bernie? Because I, I remember a lot of neoliberal Democrats saying we can't support Bernie because if we send a socialist to the top of the ticket, then you know a Republican's going to win. So I mean, don't you think that you could have made a difference in that race? I'm not, well, I'm not sure I, my brand matters that much in California politics uh, statewide. But first of all, Kevin did a lot of progressive things. I mean, he, is, he came out for a single pair in California where some of the assembly had it, and he passed that through the Senate. Uh, he had come out for the most ambitious renewable energy policy. He was very, very strong on DACA and, and immigration. So I uh, and, and he does take corporate PAC money, though. <laughs> he does, yeah. But I mean, I, I, I don't think that he, I think he would have been a much better uh, choice than Diane Feinstein. Sure. Uh, and, I, and I had endorsed him. Like I said, I, I, Allison, you know, I had put out Kevin's name. I had called, I, you can look at an op-ed in, in the Sacramento Bee. I actually, my first two choices were Robert Reich and Barbara Lee. And I had said, uh, one of those two should run against Diane Feinstein. And then I said, if they don't, Kevin DeLeon should run. And so, you know, Kevin saw that op-ed in the Sacramento Bee, and he called me up, and he said, well, Barbara and uh, Robert Reich aren't running. I'm running. Endorse me. And I I endorsed him. And then a few days later, a week later, I got a call from uh, the Justice Democrats that Allison was going to enter the race. And at that point, I said, you look, I'll say nice things about her, but I've already endorsed and publicly written about Kevin DeLeon. And if someone looks at that, Sacramento Bee article where I talk about why we need a change from Don Feinstein. They'll see that I had mentioned Barbara Lee, Robert Reich is my first two choices, and then Kevin DeLeon. Sure. Well, look, I do want to make it clear to you that um, we're not forgetting your progressive record when we call you out for these types of things, because I do think that your record is important. I mean, you, you've you co-sponsored H.R. 676. You support public financing of elections. You take $0 in PAC money. So that is important. So understand that when someone like me angrily tweets at you, for example, about this endorsement, it's because it may seem unfair because I don't tweet at everyone who doesn't endorse the way I want, but it's because I respect you and you kind of are held up to a higher standard because you're so progressive and because your record is so progressive. So I do think that that is important um, for you to know. But I I think there's a difference uh, in the Crowley case where I do think it was a mistake and I really should have stayed out of it and I should have uh, learned more about Alexandria's campaign because I really think she's just a phenomenal candidate who's going to 
be a force in the party. I, I don't feel the same way about the race in it, it, Jessica Morris. I, I'm, I believe that I did endorse the, the right candidate there. That doesn't mean I, I respect Rosa Calderon and think she's got a, a great future in politics, but I don't think one can have a, a view that every progressive is going to should agree on uh, on every endorsement. Uh, I do think, though, that the Crowley one was a, was a mistake and it was an appropriate criticism, uh, and I should have stayed out of that race. And I completely respect that. Um, and the fact that you've you've taken steps to right the wrong. I mean, obviously, I would prefer that you rescind the endorsement, but I know that you've taken heed for this. So I I do think it's important that you know that we appreciate it when politicians do respond to criticism in the way that you did. Now, I kind of want to move on from this endorsement because I know you also spoke to Jimmy Dore about this as well. I wanted to ask you about a piece of legislation that you co-sponsored. This is H.R. 3057. This is called the Fair Representation Act. You authored this legislation with Jamie Raskin, and what this does is three really, really important things. It ends gerrymandering, it also moves to ranked choice voting. And I think the most important thing is that it switches from single member districts to multi member districts. Now, I think that this is probably the most important, one of the most important pieces of legislation in the country um, because it could facilitate three, four, maybe five prominent political parties that could actually win. Can you talk about this legislation? Actually, I appreciate your pointing it out. There are only three of us. On this legislation, uh, there's actually four now. Um, I do uh, want to point out. Yeah, I want to give credit to James McGovern. As of the 9th of oh. May, he co-sponsored. Yeah. And part of the question was, where the hell is Tulsi? Where's Grijalva? Where's Ellison? Where's Jayapal? Um, because this is really, really important. Well, you know, McGovern's a great member, especially on foreign policy. Uh, but you know, it's a it's a radical idea because it means all of the incumbents would have to. Uh, run for elections and our seats wouldn't be guaranteed, but it's good yeah. for democracy. One, it makes sure that people aren't drawing their own lines. Two, ranked choice voting would give challengers a better chance uh, because you uh, don't have to uh, just get 50%. You can uh, be people's second choice. And three, with the multi-candidate districts, you actually could see three third-party candidates who may get you know 10 or 12% of a vote being part of a coalition you could see more minorities more women uh winning uh so uh, i think it really would be healthy for democracy the reason people aren't for it is uh, it would mean uh, that uh, th their seats would they would be giving up their seats it's not easy to give up uh, political power right so how do you how do you convince people to support something that even though it's good for democracy is against their own self-interest how do you how do you do that because i really like this legislation and i think that really the grassroots has to do a lot but as someone who authored this legislation how do you build a coalition to support this when it's antithetical to everything they want in terms of keeping their job well you, you make the case that people really are upset and are demanding change and they want uh change in terms of how Congress works. We're at 8% approval. Something is fundamentally off. And the, the reason people are so frustrated is they don't think their voice matters. They don't think they uh, the Congress is responding to them. Uh, and you, you slowly build consensus. The other big proposal I have with Russ Feingold and Larry Lessig uh, is to give every American citizen $50 for elections. Let's turn every voter into a donor uh, the way Bernie Sanders did. But this way, you don't have to be famous or running for president. If every American had $50 that they could give 
to the House, the Senate, or President, uh, you wouldn't have to rely on big donors. So these kind of bold initiatives that were totally reimagine our democracy, uh, I think is what the country uh, wants. And, uh, you know, I, I don't look at how something is going to play in Ohio or think about uh, the politics. I just uh, do things that I think are going to be right. And I believe a conviction-driven politics actually would probably also be good, smart electoral strategy. Bernie Sanders' campaign showed that. Now, can you talk about another aspect of our system that needs to be fundamentally reformed? I know you support public financing of elections. How how would we do this and what would this look like? I mean, do you think that a constitutional amendment would be something that's that's warranted? Do you think just simply overturning Citizens United would be enough? Can you talk about public financing of elections more? Because I think this is very important. Sure. Well, that's exactly what I was talking about, the proposal with Russ Feingold and Larry Lessig, which uh, would give every American citizen $50 to spend on elections. So it would be uh, financing, but each citizen would have uh, a voice. Uh, of course, we need to overturn Citizens United, uh, and we need to have a constitutional amendment that money isn't speech. But in the meantime, even under Citizens United, uh, you can empower every citizen uh, to uh, have a voice so that you're turning literally voters uh, into donors instead of uh, uh, having a special donor class. Right. And and we've seen in certain districts where they have incentivized this, how it does um, kind of bring down the level of corruption and dependency on corporate donations. So I do think that that's a great policy. Um, now that I have you on, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you about net neutrality, because I know you're from Silicon Valley and a lot of small tech startups in your constituency really rely on net neutrality to survive, essentially. Now, I do want to ask you, there's two different questions that I have. First and foremost, we know that the Senate recently passed the joint resolution, part of the CRA, to nullify the FCC's repeal of net neutrality. Can you talk about where that's at in the House and if you think it will have the support to pass? Well, again, Markey deserves a tremendous amount of credit. He I agree. that fight in the Senate. Uh, you got Republicans on board. Uh, we're working on it uh, in the House. We're trying to get... Uh, Republicans on board. It's uh, uh, uphill because we're going to need first to get all of our Democratic caucus. We don't have even everyone in the Democratic caucus. And then to get about uh, 20 uh, to 25 Republicans. Uh, But we're working hard because the principle is so important. I mean, net neutrality is not just about small tech startups. It's about uh, freedom of speech. The fact that uh, you have a program uh, which reaches thousands and thousands of people is possible partly because of net neutrality. I mean, imagine if the only people who had access to broadcasting information online uh, were big companies. It would drown out independent voices. It would drown out uh, bloggers. It would drown out podcasts. uh, And it would price out uh, speech. And that's why the the Internet is the one democratizing place uh, in this country. And we need to, to keep it that way. Now, I did want to ask you, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the situation in um, California's legislature with regard to net neutrality. So if one of, okay, so they have a bill that would be the most powerful and strongest net neutrality protections if it passed. However, there's currently been an attempt by a Democrat named Miguel Santiago, who is trying to water it down, not only strip away what makes this bill so special, but basically gut the provisions that protect people from net neutrality. Um, so as someone who's in Congress, 
Is there anything that you can do to influence the situation in the state legislature to get him to basically come on board? I'm glad you brought this up because I Scott Weiner has done a terrific job. He has absolutely net neutrality bill. I tweeted out actually against the assembly member you you talked about, saying uh, it's absurd what he's doing. He's basically doing the bidding of AT and T and the telecoms uh, by providing a watered down version of net neutrality. Uh, we ought to be voting for uh, 822, which is what uh, Weiner's bill is. There was a compromise where Weiner. Uh, agreed to compromise with uh, uh, Kevin DeLeon's bill on four, SB 460, and that's still a good bill. I'm fine with that. Uh, but to have a dilution, which is what this assembly member is trying to do because of the ISP interest, is just appalling. Uh, Nancy Pelosi led a letter from uh, California House members urging the assembly uh, to vote for the stronger net neutrality bill. Uh, and if folks look at my uh, Twitter account, they'll see that I specifically tweeted at, at this assembly member uh, saying, asking him to do the right thing. Uh, one of the great things about politics right now, uh, as I realized uh, even this last few weeks, is how informed our voting populace, progressive voting populace is. Uh, people are following every endorsement, they're following every legislation, they're following bill numbers, and I tell you that's going to make a huge difference in terms of letting people know they're under a microscope, as they should be in a democracy. Right, absolutely. Um, and, and just to kind of follow up with that, I actually tried calling Miguel Santiago's office. His inbox is full. Um, according to Fight for the Future, he's just not taking calls, he's not responding to constituents. So... This is someone who is in the pocket of AT&T. I believe that they are his fifth largest donor throughout his career. So it is frustrating, and I do appreciate the fact that you are calling him out. Um, moving on to another subject, I did want to ask you about the situation in um, North Korea. So Democrats, by and large, well, not by and large, there's a number of Democrats, Tammy Duckworth, Chris Murphy, who... They're in the Senate and they're authoring legislation to kind of tie Donald Trump's hands to prevent him from basically doing things that would allow for peace in North Korea. Can you talk about your stance? I know that you are against U.S. militarism, but how, do you feel as though Democrats are resisting Trump from the right here? And what do you think overall of the situation in terms of us trying to get peace? Well, I don't know if you saw, but I led a letter with 15 Democrats actually supporting the president's efforts to engage in diplomacy. I called out uh, Schumer, who was the Senate, who was the Senate Majority Leader, saying that uh, his efforts to outhawk Donald Trump from the right and mimic the rhetoric of John Bolton is the wrong approach. First of all, there there is something that we are going to gain uh, by engagement, and that is the freeze freeze uh, proposal, which uh, basically was China's proposal, uh, and that means we are going to stop our decapitation exercises. We shouldn't be engaging in military exercises on the peninsula where we're uh, trying to simulate the decapitation of Kim Jong-un, and they're going to stop uh, their nuclear testing. Uh, that We don't know uh, this for how long, but that is constructive framework that's a, uh, a step forward. It's similar to what Bill Perry was working on. Our next step should be to get them to declare where their nuclear facilities are. We should try to make sure that they don't have the capacity to trust ICBMs that could strike uh, the United States. So do I think that the negotiation was uh, what Donald Trump claimed it was? No, it's, it, they certainly haven't gotten to denuclearization. Do I wish Bill Perry were negotiating for us or 
uh, Obama or someone else, yes. But uh, to criticize uh, engagement in itself and not to recognize that we we should be encouraging that uh, is to basically be parroting uh, John Bolton's talking points. And that should not be the Democratic position. The Democratic position should be one of engagement. Exactly. So, um, yeah, thank you for speaking out on that. One last question I want to ask you is about Donald Trump's zero tolerance immigration policy. So, you know that he signed an executive order stopping basically the policy that he started in the first place. So instead of separating families at the border and taking adults to jail and kids in U.S. custody, we're going back to an Obama era policy now that we saw in 2014 when Obama didn't know how to deal with an influx of immigrants uh, from Central America. So even though families won't be separated, which I'm very thankful for. I'm sure you are too. We're still going to see families being locked up in cages just together. And I still think that's horrible. So what do you think Democrats will do going forward? Because I'll give them credit where it's due. I think they did a good job resisting and raising awareness about this, especially Jeff Merkley. But um, do you think that they're going to tone down the rhetoric now and just give them a pass? Because I think that Locking people in cages is still egregious, even if it's better than separating them and putting them in different cages, separating families. Well, it is a, it, it is egregious, and I would give I, I certainly give Senator Jeff Merkley and Pamela Jayapal credit who, who visited detention centers, but really I give the uh, credit to activists and citizens across this country. Yeah. It, it reaffirmed my sense of the decency in this country that the, it was just appalling, and people uh, said, uh, you know, I. I've never been more embarrassed to be an American. I can't believe this is happening in my in our country. Uh, and so uh, it's obviously a step in a, a constructive uh, a, a direction, but it still is uh, appalling. I mean, you the big issue is that the president has a policy to criminally prosecute people coming across the border. This has never been done, even under the Obama administration where I agree they had detention facilities and that uh, was not uh, the most uh, humane and we need uh, to even uh, correct from that. But even under the Obama administration, there was a civil uh, trial. There was not a criminal prosecution. So the, the first thing that the Trump administration needs to do or Congress needs to do is to make it clear that we are not going to criminally prosecute people uh, for crossing the border uh, and Congress uh, can do that tomorrow if we wanted to. And I hope that my party and Democrats will remain unified in uh, making it illegal to criminally prosecute immigrants. And then the second thing we need to do is uh, have some humanity uh, in how uh, immigrant families are treated and how uh, they're represented uh, and the time frame with which that has to be resolved uh, so that they're not in uh, conditions that are violating their human rights. Right. So I know you've got to run. Thank you so much for coming on the program. I truly appreciate it. Again, I think that having these conversations, even if they're tough and difficult, um, they're really important because it shows that you are engaged with the community and you're not just paying lip service and that, you know, um, your record is, is right. You are, you are really reaching out to progressives. So again, thank you. Is there anything else that you wanted to add? I appreciate it. Look, I, I really appreciated the constructive criticism and I uh, I think that's the hallmark of democracy. I know you appreciate you're thanking me for being on, but that's really my job to right. respond to people and uh, to, to engage in democracy. I fundamentally believe in three things: we we need to uh, restrain our militarism. We're in too many uh, bad wars overseas. We need to deal with the fundamental lack of economic opportunity and income stagnation in this country, and we need to 
have restorative justice for some of the uh, injustices on race and, and immigration. On those issues, I think people will find that uh, I have been very, very uh, firm, bold, and principled. And I think our party, if we have a bold conviction that fulfills FDR's vision, Dr. King's vision, Dr. Barber's vision with the Poor People's Campaign, uh, that that's what's going to respond and inspire people. So I, people are going to disagree with me, and I certainly am not perfect. It's it's my first campaign in Congress, uh, term in Congress. Uh, I look forward to learning more from from folks, but ultimately, I hope people will know that those are my values, and we're in this together to try to make this country uh, more consistent with those values. All right. Well, Congressman Rokana, thanks again. Take care. Thank you. Well, that's all I got for you guys today. Thank you all so much for tuning in if you've made it this far in the show. If you want more Humanist Report videos, you can visit humanistreport.com or as usual, you can check out our YouTube page. And additionally, if you'd also like to support the show, you can visit humanistreport.com support or check out patreon.com forward slash humanistreport. Thank you all so much. I will see you next week. I'll also be at the next live Jimmy Dore show in Portland on uh, June 30th, I believe, and also July 1st. So I hope to see some of you there. Take care.